Hey, welcome to Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. I'm your host, Pastor Brent Kuhlman, along with Pastor Adam Moline and Pastor Clint Poppy. Poppy's the Greek yogurt pastor, and uh, Moline, you're what, the... Uh, the pioneer pastor, you only eat bear meat, and elk meat. That's deer right. Meat. I have to kill it or plant it with my own hands. Yeah, that's so. right. You should have a syndicated uh, food show. <clears throat> I thought about doing something like Survivor Man, only wearing a clerical collar. Exactly. The cooking pastor, the naked cooking pastor. Put all those syndicated titles together. Naked <laughs> and afraid, cooking pastor. That Nothing kind of but a clerical <laughs> exactly collar. Right, right? Yeah, that's a scary image. It's why I don't watch Naked and Afraid. I mean, that's just the stupidest show I've pay ever for seen. Cable. It's the stupidest show you've ever seen. In any event, <coughs> welcome, everybody. We're going to get back to Matthew 24. And uh, why are we going back to Matthew 24? Well, you know, a long time ago, we were uh, studying or what how, how the creed works from the scriptures, how it flows from the scriptures. And, of course, the Apostles' Creed teaches that Jesus will return on the last day to judge the living and the dead. And we spent a lot of time learning from Scripture that the last days began when Jesus came, and the last days will continue until he uh, reveals himself in glory on the last day to judge the living and the dead. And so we went to Matthew 24 because this is a go-to passage that speaks about the end times and the last day. And at the same time, it also speaks about another event in the history of the world, which climaxes at 70 A.D., when the Roman general Titus, <coughs> after four or five years from 66 to 70 AD, besieges Jerusalem and then finally captures Jerusalem and uh, destroys the temple in 70 AD, which of course Jesus predicts in Matthew 24 and uh, is a foretaste then of what the last day will be like. Just like the flood in Noah's day is a foretaste of what the last day will be. So now Jesus speaks about the destruction of the temple and the things that precede it. These are, this is what it's going to be like living in the last days and even right up to the last day and what it will be like at the last day. So when you read Matthew 24, you have to keep this in mind, that Jesus speaks about both events, and sometimes he's talking about both events at the same time. <laughs> uh, so that, that, that's helpful in, in reading. Pro- prophetic perspective. Is that what is, they call it? That is the technical term for that, prophetic perspective. Or another way to say fulfillment, but not without... Or but with further, re- but not without remainder, if you will. There's still more to come. Yeah. But again, I want to emphasize emphasize this this point. When we read Matthew 24 and its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21, Jesus speaks about the destruction of the temple and the last day, because the destruction of the temple is a foretaste of what the last day will be like. Okay. And this is why I contend that the old German Luther Bibles. Any of you got your your German Lutheran Bible? Any of you got those? Vicar, do you have Vicar sitting here with us in the studio? It's today. available for free on BibleGateway.org or .com. I don't remember which one. But now we're yeah. talking we're talking about the Luther Bibles. Yep, yep. And the Luther Bibles always included, and and the the Saxons that came over from Germany and the Prussians and and if you came from Germany, came to America, and you brought your Bibles. Guess what was included in your Bible? A history of the destruction of Jerusalem. Did you know that? I did no. not know that. Oh, yeah. There was a history of it. And you could read about the history of the... De- and why? Well, precisely because what I've just been saying for the last five minutes. See, this has been lost. Is it Josephus's account, or what is it? Uh, that I don't know for sure. I don't think it's Josephus, but I could be wrong. That I don't know. You'll have to look that up. I'll, I'll leave that to the other experts. But that was included, a history. Okay? Now... Let's, let's go back to Matthew 24, starting at verse 1, because it's been a long time since we've been there. 
So Jesus leaves the temple, he goes away, and his disciples, they come to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And then Jesus says in verse 2, you see all these things, boys? (laughs) I'm paraphrasing. You see this stuff? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So here he says the temple's going to be destroyed. And this, for, for a Hebrew, for a Jew, that's the end of the world. Because the, the, the temple is God's residence, his palace on the earth. This is where God blesses his people, where he puts his name. So if this is destroyed, that's got to be the end of the world. And it makes sense then. God's visible presence, God's <laughs> real presence among the people. Yeah, yeah. Go back to, you know, think about this in the Old Testament, folks. First Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicates the temple that he made. And uh, Solomon says, Can God, does God dwell on earth? Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, he does here in this temple where he puts his name. And when we pray, he hears and he forgives. So that's, yeah, piggybacking on that. And even further back, <coughs> think of Exodus 20, <coughs> verse 24 where the context, of course, is the giving of the Ten Commandments, and then God gives Moses instructions with regard to <coughs> worship. You know, make an altar of earth for me and offer your sacrifices there. And in verse 24, God says, wherever I cause my name to be honored. Now, Clint, you're the Hebrew scholar. I'm going to put you on the spot. <coughs> what, what is the Hebrew verb form there that's translated wherever I cause my name to be honored? Do you remember? I can't it's hiphil. So this is God doing it. It's translated correctly usually. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, God says, I'll be there and I'll I'll bless you. I will come to you and I will bless you. Notice the association with worship and name. This continues on with the temple. And then it continues on with Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the temple (coughs) and the name. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. I'm, I'm, I'm just rambling, you know, but this is part of table talk. You just ramble. But back to Matthew 24. I was just going to say what makes that significant is we don't worship wherever we feel like worshiping. Um, you know, I can worship God in bed on Sunday morning. I can worship God on the golf course. I can worship God in the duck blind. You know, that kind of thing that we hear on a regular basis. God attaches his name to specific places and to specific things like his word his gifts, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh, we can worship wherever we want, but oftentimes that's the strange fire that is condemned in in the scriptures. And uh, the kings, the northern kings, um, most of the time they are condemned simply because they're worshiping in the wrong place. Well, and, and this is the point. King Jeroboam, when he sets up places of worship in the northern kingdom, because he doesn't want his people to go to the southern kingdom in Jerusalem to worship, because then he's going to lose his political clout and religious clout. So he sets up two places, one just north of the border, (laughs) and then one way up north in Dan, and says, the people of the northern kingdom, we're going to worship here. Well, God didn't promise to put his name there. The point being is that, let's diagnose what you just said and what Jeroboam does, is that when you think that you have better words than the Lord, watch out. And that's Jeroboam. And you're right. And so when you think you have better words than the Lord with regard to where God promises to be for you, to bless you, then you're condemned. Read your Old Testament very carefully on this. Now, just so the people aren't misunderstanding what we're talking about, when we use the term worship, that cuts two ways. Because uh, you're right, Clint. 
God promises to bless us with the forgiveness, the Good Friday forgiveness that Christ won on the cross through the word and the sacraments. Okay? So is God everywhere? Yes. God's everywhere. But where does he promise to be for you graciously? That's the, the, that's the proper distinction. So if I want to receive the forgiveness of sins from God, God, has God promised to give it to me on the golf course? No. He promises to give it to me in his word and sacraments. And that's normally given where? Church. Yeah, right. Now, worship is also spoken of in the Bible in another way, too. And that's Romans 12. That your life lived out by faith, your service of love, Paul says, this is also your spiritual worship. So faith in the places where God says, here I'm for you, and then your life of love lived for others, that's also part of worship as well. Let's also add something else to this talk. Um, let's not forget that we, the baptized, have been given God's divine and saving name. And so during the week, the holy and royal priesthood then prays. That's one of the spiritual sacrifices that the holy and royal priesthood does. So we pray. And how do you begin to pray? Where you, you invoke the divine name. So in the small catechism, you have the suggestion when you get up in the morning and when you go to bed, you begin your prayers by the invocation. You, you invoke God's divine and saving name based upon his promise in the Bible that where I put my name, there I am, and I will bless you. So even though you're not in church, we invoke God's name in our homes, and God is there with his name, promising to be with us to bless us. And that's why, to, to push this even further, that's why, um, for example, the evening prayer that Luther suggests, you know, that I thank you prayer, and we ask God to forgive us all our sins where we have done wrong. And that's based upon what? His divine promise in his word that he forgives us for Christ's sake. But you're not in church, you see. But this extends. The home is like church in miniature as well, if, if you will. This is why Luther could say that the mom and the dad are the bishops and the bishopesses. The he even, even calls them apostles. <laughs> and it's very common in the early days of Lutheranism to talk about the family altar. Yeah, yeah. Where the the father teaches the family uh, to pray the word of God, to sing hymns, and uh, this family altar has has all but been lost in our minds and in our homes. Today. And I think during this pandemic, we can we can help people do this again. Absolutely. Now, Moline, of course. Let's say Moline all of a sudden decides, you know what? Uh, I, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I don't need that for forgiveness. See, that's now the proper distinction between the law and the gospel comes into play. With a Moline who talks like that, then we have to come with the law and say, you're wrong, brother. Right. Yeah. You know. As, yeah. As oftentimes pastors do, and I think that's, you know, this is very, very tangential, but uh, if you're listening and your pastor comes and says something hard to you, it's done out of love uh, so that you might repent and, and come back to God's word. He's not trying to make you feel like a jerk or, uh, you know, drive you from the church. He yeah, it's wants not, you to it's be not saved. personal. Right. <clears throat> By the way, uh, I find this fascinating. I'm, I'm piggybacking what you just said. Now, of course, I follow the, the papal uh, readings. I have the three-year series, and we're in series A. I know you're one year, so we always have fun talking about this with one another. So I'll just I'll, I'll own up to it. Heretic. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the first reading for Easter 6 is from Acts 17. <clears throat> and it's very interesting that Paul on Mars Hill, or the Areopagus, he does exactly what the prophets do. He does exactly what John the Baptist does. He does exactly what Jesus does. The, one of the first words out of his mouth when he preaches on Mars Hill is the R word. 
You know what I'm, the repent. God wants all people to repent. And why? Because there's going to be a last day judgment. And the one who's going to do the last day judging is the one that God the Father raised from the dead. That's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> and so this is part of the pastoral task. Wait, there's loads of things. You know, I would love to do a study of the book of Acts because the more I read the book of Acts, the more you, you realize the parallels. Oh, yeah. It's, it's awesome, Clint. He, he's, he's giving me a hard time because are you, we're are you halfway through the book of Acts in our Bible study. Oh, and, so and I think the... To point be fair, Pastor Molina's in love with the book of Acts. That's why I'm teasing <laughs> him right now. I think it's great because you see that the early preachers of Christianity, like Peter and Paul and uh, all the other Mary. apostles, are actually Lutheran <laughs> preachers. They preach the law. They preach gospel. They preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. The church is brought into existence by preaching, baptizing, and the Lord's Supper. And basically everything they do matches what we do now, except... They are able to do some miracles, but the miracles never actually convert anyone. It's the preaching and the sacraments that do. The miracles get people's attention. It's interesting. Yeah, just one other point on, the, on Acts is the more I read the book of Acts, and I'm sure you can vouch for this, is you see the, the parallels between what happened in our Lord's ministry and what happens in the apostolic ministry of Peter and Paul. For example, oh, I hear the music. We'll come back to this after, we, after a break. Hang on tight. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. We were just kind of going back and forth and, and rejoicing in the book of Acts. And I'm, but when I heard the music, I was saying, you know, the parallels between our Lord's ministry and the Apostles' ministry, you just see this all the time in the book of Acts. And while I adjust my microphone, you know, the manager is always harping on me for adjusting my mic as if I don't talk loud enough. It's just, I find that hard to believe. Some some people speak soft, carry big stick. Oh, the, the some stock. some people cannot take instruction, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if the shoe fits, wear it. Yeah, that's yes. Right. Well, I'm wearing it right now, big time. Yes. But the shoe is very tight. It's going to take a while to get used to this shoe. In any event, it's in Acts 17. Interesting, you know, Paul and Silas there in Thessalonica, and of course, then there's this there's a rabble that goes after them. And then they have to they have to run away, you know. They have to flee. But it's interesting. The rabble. What do they say? Um, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here. And Jason. That's all we know about him. He no doubt hosted the apostles. The Greek name. Yeah, Jason had received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard this. Is just like Jesus' ministry. We have no king but Caesar. Well, I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise because I think uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts, that's what Luke writes. He says, you know, in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do. And now in this book, I'm going to talk about the things he continued to do. And that's, I think, the great thing. And that makes it Lutheran and its very foundation is that the church exists by the work of Jesus Christ through word and sacrament, and that's what Luke is teaching us in the entire book of Acts. And it's the Lord who's doing it. Exactly. Yeah, the Lord didn't, uh, 
when he ascended, he didn't just take a rocket ship up in somewhere in the Milky Way galaxy where he sits up there and just watches us from up there. But no, he's, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age, he said in Matthew 28. So the ascension means, as Paul says, that he fills all things for the sake of his church. He's the ascended reigning Lord for the sake of his church. And so back to what we were talking about earlier with Exodus 20. Uh, the first Kings 8 reference, the Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. See, he's still there. That's Luke's point. He's still there physically, according to both his humanity and divinity. Now, all right. Here's another thing, just for fun. Did you notice, uh, I'm, I'm doing the parallels between Acts and the apostolic ministry and Jesus, Jesus ministry. Uh, they're acting, the, the accusation is they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Now, this runs through the entire New Testament, this, this charge, and it will continue. This charge continues until the last day. Namely, these Christians, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? I do. We, living, we have to be very careful, and I'm serious about this. I'm, I'm, I'm as serious as a heart attack here when I say these words, okay? And I, I'm, I'm, speaking to, I'm speaking to you not as a doctor because <laughs> I'm not. I'm a pastor. And so what I'm about ready to say is as a pastor, and it's for high pastoral care. We need to be very careful so that we do not commit idolatry in the state. In other words, we, we should never make the state our God and Savior. Now, when the state thinks that uh, she's a divinity, this is where the, the accusations come. You Christians have a king. You think you have a king? No. The, I'll just use our language of today. The governor is our king. And if you go against what's the, what the governor says, then you are, you're committing civil idolatry and we're coming after you. I hope, I hope this is making sense. We have to be very, so that what I'm trying to say, not very well, not very cogently, but just hang with me. So this, this, this constant attack against Christians goes throughout the entire New Testament, climaxes in the book of Revelation, where Caesar claims to be God and Lord, and you must worship him and his government, and all his representatives and ambassadors, okay? And the book of Revelation teaches it very simply, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is. Worship him only because he's won the victory. He's, he's the Lord. But be, be careful, folks. When you say that Jesus is Lord, then these attacks, like we read about in Acts 17, the, you, you people are turning the world upside down. You're going to cause anarchy in the world because you think that there's another king named Jesus. No, we have a we have Caesar, or we have our governor, or we have our whatever. You you uh, you want people to die, yes, because you think you should gather together in the midst of a pandemic and praise this God of yours, yes. And so you don't love people, you hate people, you want people to die. This is how this is being manifested in in some parts of our country right now absolutely where the biggest threat to humanity is not COVID-19 it is Christians who want to gather together and worship you got that right and so not too long ago I preached a sermon from Acts 2 you know and Acts 242 you know they about devo devotion I read that sermon and I, I just politely warned my congregation you know while we still have the freedom I hinted etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, we have to be, again, the point is we have to be very, very careful as Christians and the church that uh, we worship Jesus as Lord and no one else. No one else. So, you know, uh, I'll make another tangential remark on this, and then we'll hopefully get back to Matthew 24. But this is part of the nature of table talk. We can just take this any way we want, and I'm going to. I'm going to take full advantage of it. And that, uh, you know, we all grew up, didn't we? We've all grown up 
being taught authoritatively and categorically that there is a wall that separates the church and the state. This wall divides the church and the state. And so namely, the church cannot cross over the wall and tell the state what to do and vice versa. With this pandemic, the wall has been taken down. I find this quite ironic, sadly ironic. So this, to me, again, I said in a previous episode, know your church history, folks, because things repeat. So what am I talking about? After Luther dies, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, defeats the Schmalkald League, defeats them in a battle. And he takes the elector prisoner. He takes Philip of Hesse, another reformational prince, captive, puts them in jail. And then he puts into law an edict. It's imperial <coughs> law. And it says, and I'm paraphrase, you Lutherans, we're going to tell you how you're going to worship. You do certain things or we're going to shut you down. So in other words, the state, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, the state was now telling the church what she could do and what she could not do. And if she did not obey the state's laws, we will shut you down. Parallel today as wasn't, well. Wasn't that also the, uh, the issue with the Prussian Union yep. and what led to the Saxon immigration where the state told Lutherans how they w- must worship correct. and what liturgy books they must use That's correct. and what they could and could not do in the worship service. And Lutherans rebelled and immigrated to America where they were supposed to have yep. the freedom to worship. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that point, Clint, because that's, that's why there is a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod to this day. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, basically, that's why it started. That's why these Saxon Germans essentially emigrated to the United States, so that they could be free to worship God according to the scriptures. That, that, let's, let's clinch this point. Go ahead. I was going to say, there's the really dangerous thing, right? Uh, should we lose the freedom here, where else is there left to go? Well, this you know, that, that's a little terrifying. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, cutting and running is not always the answer. No, I, I agree. Sometimes you just have to stay and suffer. Now, that's a whole other topic. That, that is. I'd uh, rather f- remember the old, uh, some of you are young, uh, old enough to remember the old uh, uh, cigarette commercials that were on TV, Lucky Strike. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'd rather fight than switch. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I am not a passive-aggressive kind of guy when it comes to these kind of things these matters of faith i'm an aggressive aggressive kind of guy so take they may take they my life goods fame child or wife though these all be gone the victory has been won um so bring it on bring it on two things real quickly a piggybacking on what we're talking about so there are i know of many roman catholic friends and uh, acquaintances of mine who when you say where are we going to go there are many Roman Catholics now who are considering to emigrate. Where do you think they want to go? Poland. That's exactly right. Poland. Poland offers you a free van if you have enough kids. <laughs> Poland gives you a tax break for every kid. That's enormous. Poland uh, has been uh, fighting against some of these uh, uh, anti-Christian rules that are being brought in uh, tangentially. They have uh, great sausage. They do. Uh, yeah, just, that's just a side note to a <laughs> Polish sausage vicar. Okay, yeah. just thought I should explain that. The other thing, the second thing is, is you mentioned the Prussian Union. And so you had, you had C.F.W. Walther, who is the first president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. While he was a pastor in Saxony, 
He was almost defrocked. And you know what the issue was? He refused to use the rationalistic church agenda for a baptism because the ras- rationalism means that reason runs the show, not the word of God. And we all know, reasonably speaking, that the devil really doesn't exist. You know, there's no such thing as the devil. There's no demonic thing. This is what the rationalists taught. So the rationalist theologians wrote a, a new church agenda that, that needed to be used in Saxony. And Luther, uh, Walther refused to use that agenda for a baptism because the baptismal right excluded something in the rationalistic agenda. What was it? Do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? And the casting out, the exorcism in the baptismal liturgy. That was, that was eliminated. And Luther, I keep, I keep wanting to say Luther, Walther refused to use that agenda. <coughs> he went back and used the old agendas that had the exorcism in it, and he was almost defrocked. The point being, your point is well taken. The state said, no, you will do it this way. And this gets carried further with the Lord's Supper. The state, at the time of the Prussian Union, the state said, you Lutherans have to worship like a Calvinist. So when it comes to the Lord's Supper, you can't teach categorically that that bread is the body of Christ and that that wine is the blood of Christ, that you actually eat it with and eat and drink it with your mouth and that it's for the forgiveness of your sins. You Lutherans can't do that. We, 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 we categorically say you can't do that. And that's why Lutherans said, goodbye, we're gone. And, and people listening to this would say, well, that would never happen today because the state does not care whether people believe that the bread is the body of Christ or the wine is the blood of Christ. And yet there are some states where the directed health measures are telling people that they can or cannot receive the Lord's Supper in certain ways. Some people are being forced to use the Lord, do the Lord's Supper in one kind for fear that they may spread infection. Congregations are being told they cannot use the common cup, no matter what uh, health uh, studies show with regard to uh, that not being a, a place where disease is transmitted. So the state is starting to do those things right here and right now in the midst of this pandemic. Yeah, just be aware of that, folks. Just simply be aware of it. Well, we didn't get very far in Matthew 24, but to reemphasize that point in Matthew 24, Jesus says that the temple is going to be destroyed. And I said, for a Hebrew, that's the end of the world. And so the apostles say, well, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? And now Jesus is going to answer their question, but he's going to connect the destruction of Jerusalem also with the end of the world. And so he's going to talk about both at the same time sometimes. Sometimes he'll be talking about one in and of itself and the other in and of itself. But you, can, you have to keep this context in mind when you read Matthew 24. I thought Jesus was the temple and he was talking about his body. <laughs> that's another way. <laughs> that's, another, that's true, but that's not here. Okay. Stay Lutheran, my friends. So hold my hand, I'll walk with you, my dear. 